Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Madina Thiam. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Mauro Nobili. Dr. Nobili is an assistant professor of history at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. He is also the author of a brand new book, Sultan, Caliph, and the Renewer of the Faith, Ahmed Lobo, the Tarikh al-Fatash, and the Making of an Islamic State in West Africa. The book just came out with Cambridge University Press in 2020, and I'm very excited to discuss it today with Dr. Nobili. Mauro, welcome on the show. Thank you very much, Medina. Thank you for your invitation. Um, yeah, of course. Um, I was, As I told you, I was very happy to get a chance to talk about the book. And before we actually go on and do that, I'd like you to introduce yourself. Can you walk us through your background a little bit, the kind of historical work that you do and how you came to do that work? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for this. So, I mean, I would start actually with a sort of more of a personal uh, history of how we arrived to work on uh, West Africa. And then I will uh, take you to how I ended up working on this particular project, uh, which is becoming basically almost synonym of my entire academic life so far. But I've been interested in West Africa and glad to, uh, to, to be able to travel to West Africa well before I became an academic. So, I, I come from southern Italy and I was born. Uh, in a neighbor that was basically from the 1990s, uh, the neighbors of West African migrants, you know, Senegalese, uh, Malians, Burkina Ghanians, etc., uh, in, uh, in, in the city, in Naples, my hometown. So, uh, I kind of got attracted by uh, West African, uh, community, the West African community, especially by West African history, well before uh, I decided that this would have become, uh, uh my own, uh, I would say, field uh, of work. So, interested by uh, the West African community, most immigrant communities in southern Italy, I enrolled in an African studies program at the University of uh, Napoli, L'Orientale. And it is there that basically I did my entire uh, education, uh, all the way to my master uh, and during my PhD. So, the thing that attracted me the most uh, was specifically how much Islam uh, as a religion had shaped the uh, lives of uh, of my, uh, I would say, uh, immigrants living with me uh, in my area. So I realized that uh, my interest in African studies laid specifically in the history of African Muslim societies. So I was glad to take Arabic. I studied Arabic Islamic studies and basically double majoring in African studies and Islamic studies. So when I went for my PhD, I decided that I wanted to uh, work on Mali and specifically that I wanted to work uh, on uh, Mali by reading uh, Arabic manuscripts written by African Muslim uh, scholars, specifically by Muslim uh, uh, scholars from uh, from Mali. So at the time, my attention was attracted on uh, a very little known collection of manuscripts uh, in Paris uh, that is called the Fonds de Gironco, so the De Gironco collection uh, that is housed today at uh, Institut de France. So I was studying these 12 uh, 
um, you know, volumes uh, of uh, manuscripts from mainly Mali, Niger, uh, and a little bit of Nigeria. Well, I basically my eyes were caught uh, by a very strange little document. So the document was known, uh, was written, was described as the Tarikh al Fatash. So it is a summary, this manuscript. Uh, of a chronicle that was, I mean, is very familiar, I would say, to every historian of West Africa, because it was published uh, in, a, in a French translation uh, in 1913 in Paris, uh, you know, by two very famous scholars of the colonial period, Octave Das and uh, Maurice de la Fosse. So it has been widely used in his, uh, uh, in his translations, despite substantial problems uh, of authorship and authenticity. So, but there was a substantial problem, as I'm saying, with this document. Because the text of the manuscript explicitly ascribed the chronicle to a character that never popped up in the extensive literature that was produced on the Tarikh of Fatash. So at the same time, I was kind of attracted by this thing, but also kind of puzzled, troubled. Honestly, at the time, I didn't really understand what was going on. I sensed that the manuscript was important. I translated in my dissertation as an appendix. And, you know, I. Honestly, just mentioned that this was an interesting manuscript that made little sense with our knowledge of the history of West Africa. And then I moved on. I mean, I thought I would have moved on because, in fact, the Chronicle followed me in three continents, basically. And I continued working on it for a decade because I worked on it when I left uh, uh, Naples uh, to move to the University of Hamburg, where I I wrote like a a little piece uh, on... uh, sort of newsletter of the center that was called uh, of the center for manuscript culture at the university of hamburg it was called the manuscript of the month and then i moved to south africa in cape town where actually my book project uh, the one that i completed this year uh, started taking shape so in cape town i was a postdoctoral student uh, at the department of religious studies as well as in the timbuktu manuscript project uh, that was led by shamil uh, jeppi and I would say that the time in Cape Town was by far the most formative period of my academic life. And as I like always to describe Shamil, Shamil is a visionary. And the Timbuktu project was basically the result of his vision of a Pan-African project bringing together scholars who were interested in Islamic literate culture from all over the continent. From, you know, of course, from Mali, from Senegal, from Ghana, from Niger, from Nigeria, from um, Mozambique, from Ethiopia, uh, etc. And, you know, we are all working very close. Uh, and at a certain point in time, in fact, uh, sharing uh, like a big house uh, in one of the uh, neighbors of, the, uh, of Cape Town, not that far from the University of Cape Town. So among the people that I was glad to meet uh, during that time, uh, was the former director of the Ahmed Bada Institute of Timbuktu, with this major repository of manuscripts uh, that was founded in the early 1970s and uh, is now in the between Timbuktu, split between Timbuktu and uh, Bamako. So I met the former director, Abdul Kadri Maiga, who was really the first person who gave to me access uh, to the large collection of manuscripts of the center. And then uh, also I got very close to, I mean, to now my good friend, Dr. Mohamed Jagayeti, who is the current director of the Ahmed Baba. You know, at the time, uh, it was uh, the summer of 2012, uh, uh, Dr. Jagayeti was involved uh, in the famous, you know, smuggling of the Timbuktu manuscript from northern Mali, you know, during the time of the occupation of the cities by a series of jihadist groups. So I, I think that at that moment, so while in Cape Town, uh, I had with me 
all the materials that I needed to start making sense of the complicated story of the Tariq al-Fattaj. So I had this unusual manuscript from the Dejironko collection. I had several manuscripts from Timbuktu. I mean, digital copies, of course, of manuscripts from Timbuktu, but also guidance uh, you know, of leading uh, scholars about West Africa, but also leading scholars from West Africa and especially from uh, Timbuktu. So basically, I think that all the pieces for me to work on the Chronicle properly were now in place. But I think I should stop here because otherwise I'll be the only one talking. So please, Medina. I mean, I could go on and listen to you. Um, and it's, it's so nice that you mentioned all of these scholars and this, this house in Cape Town. I didn't know about it. It sounds great. Because it really shows also how, you know, the, the way your thinking comes to be shaped, it's really a collaborative process um, in a way. And I want to go back to the to the manuscript. I want to go back to the Tariq Fatash because it is really the manuscript that grounds your book, um, that the book is centered around. And as you explain also, it is really a manuscript that has captured the attention of scholars for well over a century. Um, so tell us a little bit more about, about it. What is this manuscript? So the Tariq al-Fatash. The Tariq al-Fatash is a chronicle. It's a historical chronicle that, uh, you know, it attracted uh, the, the interest of Western scholars uh, since the very beginning of the colonial period. So when the French entered Timbuktu in the late, uh, you know, uh, 1893, and then eventually they maintained control of the city uh, the year after, uh, the French journalist, uh, Félix Dubois, he arrived in Timbuktu to document for his French public uh, the uh, conquest of the, the, the city of Timbuktu. And uh, he was attracted by the large amount of written materials that uh, he found uh, in the city. But he kept on hearing about a particular chronicle uh, that he was really eventually interested in, but he couldn't find it, the Tariq al-Fattash. So at the point that he describes the chronicle, uh, you know, with a very often quoted uh, uh, statement as the phantom book uh, of the Sudan. Now, the Tariq al-Fattash will be soon... Uh, you know, published in France, uh, so less than 20 years uh, after Dubois visited Timbuktu, uh, three copies specifically that were identified uh, as different manuscripts of the Tariq al-Fattah arrived in France. And as I mentioned before, these two uh, scholars, Soudas and de la Fosse, they started working together on an edition of the Arabic text as well as uh, tr a translation into French. So basically, in 1913, with this publication, for the first time, scholars had at their disposal what they believed to be the Tariq al-Fattah, which is what? It's a chronicle of Timbuktu and of West Africa more in general from uh, you know, a mythical period of time uh, that is not really easy to uh, locate uh, and all the way to the end of the uh, 1500s, of the end of the 16th century. And according to this narrative that was uh, uh, introduced originally by uh, Houdas and de la Fosse, the chronicle had been uh, written by a jurist and a scholar whose name was Mahmoud Kati. And this Mahmoud Kati was supposed to have lived in the 1500. But uh, the chronicle as we have it was not, according to Houdas and de la Fosse, the version of Mahmoud Kati but was a chronicle that had been kind of updated by Mahmoud Kati's grandsons and eventually completed in the second half of the 17th century by his uh, uh, grandson, 
uh, that we know only as the son of al-Mukhtar or Ibn al-Mukhtar in Arabic, who gave in a way the final shape uh, of uh, the chronicle. However, you know, scholars almost immediately realized that the the text that Udassin de la Fosse had reconstructed, although extremely historically important, was kind of a mess. So basically, since 1914, and all the way, I would say, until you know, 2020 with my book, there's been several scholars who contributed to the historiography of this peculiar chronicle. And, you know, I would say that almost all the scholars, the most important scholars from, you know, worked on West Africa, uh, have written some crucial piece of the story of the Fatash. I can think of John Anwick, of Medina Lital, Nehemiah Lefzion, Paolo de Moraes Farias, etc. However, I would say that none of the solutions to the problems of mainly authorship, so who was in fact author of the chronicle, and authenticity. So was the chronicle genuine? Were all those pieces written at the time in which they were supposed to be written or not? Are never really fully uh, fixed, solved by the solutions provided by these uh, scholars. You know, I really, really like to cite all the time uh, uh, Medina Lital's comment. I would say a very personal comment uh, uh, in her contribution on the Chronicle when uh, she says, uh, who does not uh, feel discomfort uh, while reading the Chronicle despite, you know, the critical apparatus uh, of, uh, you know, provided by Udas uh, and De La Fosse. So I kind of see myself... Uh, um, in this long line uh, of scholars who worked on the Tarif al Fatash. And uh, that's why um, once in Cape Town, I think I had all the pieces together uh, to contribute uh, on the historiography of the Chronicle, uh, suddenly, you know, the, I felt like the, it was time uh, to try to fix the history of the Chronicle to remedy the discomfort that Medina Lital, uh, you know, describes. It was actually shared by me and many other colleagues concerning the Chronicle. So at this time, uh, I started working on the Fatrih al-Fatash uh, with another of my uh, colleagues and friends uh, who was at the time uh, uh, already at the University of Johannesburg uh, while I was in Cape Town, uh, my uh, colleague, Dr. Shahid uh, Mafi. You know, maybe, you know, we were inspired by his amazing uh, skills in making coffee, but I would say during uh, several nights, uh, you know, spent uh, in uh, in his house, I think we really, really managed to start making sense uh, of this chronicle that had puzzled scholars, you know, for now, almost a hundred, more than a hundred years, in fact. So we started comparing the manuscript from Timbuktu, the manuscripts from uh, the De Jeromeco collection with the edition. And we realized that the complexity of the chronicle itself was actually way more, uh, you know, uh, complicated uh, than scholars had expected. So we argue in this article that uh, we published in 2014 uh, that uh, the 1913 edition that everybody has been working on, uh, been working on, uh, is in fact uh, not uh, a critical, uh, reliable critical edition of the Chronicle, but it's a conflation uh, of two different works, two different chronicles. One written in the 17th century and one written in the 19th century. So basically, what me and uh, Shahid Mati argued in that article, that we are not uh, facing uh, with the Tarikh al-Fatash, with the edition of the Tarikh al-Fatash, an older work uh, to which some forged passages had been added. We were actually dealing with two different chronicles altogether. 
Right. And that's very important, I think, uh, how you highlight the subtle but very important difference about the variety of arguments that scholars have made before about the Chronicle and the arguments that you made, um, along with Shahid Mathi and also in your work about the, the Chronicles, plural, um, that is not merely a 17th century chronicle that was modified in the 19th century, um, but it's actually a fully-fledged 19th century chronicle that was added on to or merged with, um, and you can explain to us the details a little bit more, to that 17th century chronicle. Um, and, you know, in, in the course of preparing this interview, we talked a little bit about actually how how, how these two texts come together um, the places where you see that they're not the same, the places where you see they're the same. And it was quite impressive um, seeing that, you know, um, side-to-side comparison um, of the texts. And so I would like you to explain to us a little bit more about, yeah, what is the crux of the argument you're making here about the nature of the Chronicles? And why was it imp- why is this important also? Why is it important to establish um, that this is a 19th century work um, that was added on to the 17th century work. I think this will allow to really understand what you're trying to do with the book, actually. Thank you. Thank you for this, because especially you allow me to tackle uh, one of, I think, the most complicated uh, argument that I'm trying to make. Because uh, I've already heard, for example, some people uh, uh, saying that uh, uh, their takeaway from my article with Shahid Mati in 2014 uh, is that we are arguing uh, that nothing was written in the 17th century. This is actually not what we are arguing. So let me explain this point, because I think this is really, really the core uh, of my argument. So in order to do this, uh, I need to get back uh, to what scholars have been saying about the Tariq al-Fattash and how scholars uh, have been uh, basically um, you know, dealing with the chronicle. So they believed uh, in the existence of a 17th century chronicle uh, that is the kind of a pristine text that needs to be discovered and preserved, to which some parts were added in the 19th century. Indeed, I mean, it's obvious. The Chronicle makes explicit reference to the major character. One of the major characters of my book was Ahmed Lobbo, who was the founder of the, you know, the 19th century Caliphate of Hamdallah in what is today Central Mali. So the scholarship, in a way, developed by trying to spot out uh, what is original and what is not in the Chronicle, and to cleanse uh, what is not original from the Chronicle. No, but I was not really, I've never been interested uh, in the original Chronicle. I'm, I don't know, my, uh, my brain has always been fascinated and attracted uh, by the forgery, you know, the, the things that were done in the 19th century. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Mark Bloch uh, says, you know, in his famous, you know, historian's craft, uh, we need to pay attention to forgeries because what is a forgery if not historical uh, evidence? So attracted by this idea of seeing uh, the story of the 19th century, of exploring the story of the 19th century, I focused extensively on what people have described as, uh, you know, as forgeries. But in fact, uh, first of all, I realized that uh, the difference between uh, the 19th century and the text that was produced in the 17th century was way larger than scholars have um, realized so far. So I basically realized that uh, by reading uh, the Chronicle closely, we noticed that the Tariq al-Fattash cannot be simply described uh, as a a refashioned way 
of the chronicle uh, from the 17th century. It is, in fact, a totally new chronicle written in the 19th century, whose author is referred to in that little manuscript from uh, the Digiron Co collection that basically opened this kind of Pandora box uh, that led me to write the book. So, Nurhagun Tahir was a Fulani scholar who belonged to the entourage of Ahmed Dobbo, the founder of Hamdallahi. But he wrote the chronicle and he ascribed it uh, to the 16th century and to Mahmoud Kati, the alleged author uh, that we introduced uh, earlier during our uh, conversation. But again, that's very important, going back to your question. When I say that it's a new chronicle, I'm not saying that Nohbon wrote uh, the text uh, from scratch. In fact, what Nohbon did was using a pre-existing 17th century chronicle that was authored by Ibn al-Muhtar, the grandson of Mahmoud Kati. And uh, basically, what he did is manipulating this older text by cutting, adding, replacing. So the point here is not just to understand how much in terms of quantity, you know, uh, these two texts differ from each other. This is something that previous scholars have kind of already done, although I think they underestimated this difference. But what is very important is to understand the qualitative transformation that the chronicle went through. Because by changing parts of the chronicle, reshaping the older chronicle by adding, cutting, and replacing, the Tariq al-Fatash is eventually a new project, which is characterized by a different authorial intention. And it is aiming to do a particular type of work on the ground which is basically adding legitimacy to Ahmed Lobbo and his newly founded Caliphate of Hamdallahi. And I mean, to be fair, Ahmed Lobbo did need this kind of legitimacy insofar as he was basically a nobody in the political and in the religious landscape of central Mali in the first half of the 19th century. He was not you know, a member of any of the noble warrior elite of the Fulani were you know, in charge of temporal power at the time, nor did he belong to any of the scholarly elite of Jenny or Timbuktu, for example, of, uh, of the time. And, you know, I think it's really, really important for me to stress that we need to understand that these chronicles are not repositories of facts that were recorded by people who were actually almost taking pictures of the realities that they were living. These chronicles were political projects. And, you know, in this I'm really in depth immensely, I would say, to the work of Paolo de Moraes uh, uh, Farias, uh, which shaped the way in which I'm understanding uh, the, the chronicle. So as such, I think my book uh, and my study of the Fatash, my approach to the Fatash, is not some kind of philology that is aiming at reconstructing a sort of, you know, in a platonic way, the original uh, chronicle. My intention is not specifically to understand what the chronicles say, but to try to understand uh, the kind of work that the Chronicle does in its own historical context. So I'm not trying to grasp the meaning of the text of the Fatash, but I'm trying to understand the type of work that the Chronicle was meant to do on the ground. And at the same time, by exploring the Chronicle and a series of documents that are sort of satellite around the Chronicle, I'm trying to understand the word that the Chronicle, uh, basically, that called the Chronicle, you know, into being, and at the same time, that word, the chronicle itself, uh, wanted to impact uh, upon. 
And by the way, just concluding, and then I pass the mic to you again, uh, Medina. Even the title, yes. yeah, even the title Tariq al Fatash is not uh, uh, from the 17th century. It is a 19th century uh, invention. Thank you. Huh. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Actually, at, at this point, I was planning to ask you about your research process, and we will get there. But before we do that, I want to jump ahead and talk a little bit about this world, this 19th century world that the Tariq Fatash was born into, um, the Chronicle and its title, as you, as you just mentioned. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What was this caliphate of Hamdulai, um, or this, this Dina, this Dina of the Masina, as it is uh, designated sometimes? What was this world that these people were trying to shape so much that they came up with this? project of, of writing a new historical chronicle. What was going yeah. on? Set up the context for us a little bit. Yeah, thank you, Medina. And also thank you for actually introducing the other ways in which this state was referred to. You know, I call it the Caliphate of Hamdallah from the name of the capital, uh, but uh, it is also locally known, actually locally is more known as the Dina or the Masina, the Empire of Masina, etc. So I stress uh, the term Caliphate uh, because uh, I want to underline that this state uh, was a theocratic state. Just for us to locate it on a map, uh, it was um, established uh, uh, in the first half of the 19th century in, uh, I would say, the Middle Niger, uh, roughly at the beginning, you know, from the beginning of the inland uh, Delta Niger, uh, southwest of, you know, the city of Jenne, for example. And it goes all the way to the Niger Band, uh, I would say, east uh, of Timbuktu, but maybe not as far uh, as uh, Gao, the ancient capital of the, uh, um, you know, the Songhai Empire. So why do I stress the term caliphate, the term theocracy, you know, in uh, in the place of maybe, you know, those that are more commonly used on the ground uh, in Mali, especially the Dina that you mentioned before? Because what I'm, I'm using these terms to stress a major shift that occurs with Hamdallahi in terms of understanding uh, the sources of authority of the ruler. So in the case of Hamdallahi, and contrary to what happened before, you know, when we had uh, Fulani warrior elites and the Bambara warrior elite of Segu, in a way, occupying the space that eventually would become part of Hamdallahi, were, uh, again, warrior elites uh, and in which authority rested basically on lineage. So at the time of Hamdallahi, authority got tired, became for the first time tied to Islamic knowledge and I would say to Islamic sources of legitimacy. When I say knowledge, I mean both, I would say, empirical and mystical. So, you know, the kind of knowledge you can learn from the book, but also this kind of uh, more experiential, mystic uh, type of access uh, to the divine mystery. Okay. But uh, it was not just uh, knowledge uh, that uh, became crucial uh, in the um, construction of authority of Ahmed Dobbo. It feels, uh, it felt uh, at a certain point in time uh, that uh, simply knowledge was not enough to justify the emergence of Ahmed Lobo as a new man in the West African landscape at the time. So the Tariq al-Fatash creates uh, a further set of layers uh, that strengthened the legitimacy of Ahmed Lobo. And here are the three words that I use uh, in my title. So Ahmed Lobo is constructed in the Tariq al-Fatash as a sultan that I use here as a synonym in a way of a temporary ruler 
as the inheritor of a long line of kings that they back to the Askia, the Sonni, the, the emperor of Mali, of Ghana, etc., etc. But Ahmed Lobo is also a caliph. So in a way, caliph here indicates more some kind of religiously, religiously sanctioned ruler. But in fact, not just the caliph, but a particular kind of caliph. So Ahmed Lobo is identified with an eschatological figure that is the 12th, so the last of the 12 caliphs mentioned by the Prophet Muhammad in one of the very famous hadith, which basically says that before the end of the war, there would have been 12 caliphs. So he's identified as this powerful eschatological figure, but it's also third element of my title, Ahmed Lobo is also identified as the renewer of the faith. So this also refers to a hadith of the Prophet, who is reported to have said that every century will witness the arrival of a person that is sent by God to revive the faith and prevent Islam from degenerating. So basically, the Tariq al-Fatash constructs claims for a ruler who represents a very new type of ruler in the West African landscape. Yeah, thank you. So, Ahmed Lobo, indeed, um, you ascribe him this um, these three qualifiers, um, which are also the title of your book, Sultan, Caliph, and the Renewer of the Faith. And he is very important in the story, but actually he's kind of a secondary character in your book. The one character that really is center and front and that um i think you do really well good job great job at um introducing and explaining to us everything that he tried attempts to achieve in the region at the time uh is obviously uh Tahir. so tell us more about the who is the author of the so-called forgery and who yeah. ushers in that political project so tell us more about him who who is that who is that character um What do we know about him? And um, also, like, yeah, what, how did you become more interesting in trying to in trying to lay out more about specifically his life and what he did in the caliphate? Thank you. I mean, that's a, that's a complicated question to answer because uh, uh, Nur is clearly, you know, the major uh, actor uh, in my book along with Ahmed Lobo. But we don't really know that much uh, about Nur although he's very, very prominent uh, in, uh, you know, the for example, in the oral traditions uh, of Hamdallah. The issue is that uh, most of uh, the information that are transmitted uh, on Nuh tend to be highly unreliable. So, for example, uh, he has a very long lifespan. So, uh, if, you know, we take uh, for granted, you know, the, the content of some of the oral tradition collected, for example, by uh, Ampateba, who's, of course, a major uh, uh, scholar who contributed to the history of Hamdallah, Uh, Nur would have lived for like, you know, 130 years or something like that, uh, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, goes beyond, uh, you know, every optimistic, uh, you know, expectance of life, especially in the 19th century. So there is a lot of issues that don't really make sense uh, in the life of Nur So what I try to do, I try to see through the uh, works that he produced, uh, because we do have some references to things that he wrote during his life. Uh, and through some of the documentation that makes reference to Nohabontar. So what we basically can say with solid basis is that uh, Nohabontar was, a, I would say, a quite renowned a scholar from the Middle Niger who joined 
The project of Ahmed Lobo, contrary to what believed before my book, quite early in uh, the beginning of the history of Hamdallah. And because of his, you know, stature as a, as a uh, status as a scholar, as a renowned scholar, he basically became uh, the second in command, the right hand of Ahmed Lobo. And he was the person who would be the uh, closest advisor of Ahmed Lobo all the way until uh, the death of Ahmed Lobo himself. He played a crucial role in the transition from Ahmed Lobo to his son. You can call him Ahmed II, so Ahmed, the son of Ahmed Lobo. Uh, and it's an interesting anecdote that I think can give you the, uh, an idea of how important was Ahmed, uh, was in Ahmed's relationship of Andalai. Uh, traditions say that Ahmed II felt unfit to replace his father as, you know, ruler of Hamdallahi. So he asked Nohabuntai to become the second caliph of Hamdallahi. But, you know, Nohabuntai, respecting the decision taken by Ahmed Lobo, on the contrary, endorsed the, uh, you know, the position of Ahmed Lobo, and he became, in a way, the, um, the tutor of the second caliph of Andalahi, only disappearing from the political history of Andalahi, political intellectual history of Andalahi, later on, uh, uh, you know, at the time of the third uh, um, caliph of Hamdallah, Ahmed III. So, uh, Norbuntair was a crucial intellectual uh, from the Middle Niger. I mean, we know of him, uh, uh, he wrote like a, a book on, uh, uh, on Arabic grammar. We, he wrote a book uh, on, uh, uh, I would say, the history of the Prophet. He wrote uh, several letters because it feels like, you know, he has been in charge of the uh, you know, the official correspondence of the estate. And there was also a large amount, there is a large amount of materials that he exchanged with the family, the very famous scholarly family of his uh, uh, teachers, the Kunda, who are based in Timbuktu and the desert area around uh, Timbuktu. But, you know, when I want to mention Ohobontair, of course, he is the author of, the real author of the Tarikh al-Fatash, famous intellectual from the Middle Niger, um, student uh, of one of the most important intellectuals of the time, and I would say most important, the closest advisor of Ahmed Lobo. Just for you to have an idea, you know, I have a picture in my book that has been uh, graciously uh, given to me by uh, another friend and colleague, uh, Mamadou Jallo, a picture of the mausoleum of uh, Ahmed Lobo in Hamdallahi. So, of course, it's a later mausoleum. It was not uh, built at the time of Hamdallahi. But anyway, Ahmed Lobo is buried, uh, you know, in this area, and on his side is his son Ahmed II. But there is a third character that is buried, is buried with Ahmed Lobo and his son in the same mausoleum. It is Nohobuntai. Uh, yeah. So a very important character for the for the caliphate, indeed. Yeah. Um, and so, so he's the author of the 19th century work. Um, he's the one who writes it, as you said, to usher in a specific political project. So did it work? What he was trying to achieve by writing this um, chronicle, did he achieve it? Like what work did the chronicle actually do at the moment at which it was produced in the region? So what did the chronicle work? Well, I can answer in several ways. It worked uh, if we basically... Uh, see that his kind of trickery, 
is forgery, if you want to still uh, stick to the term forgery, went basically unnoticed uh, in its complexity until now. So in this, it was very successful. <laughs> was it affecting on, effective on the ground in terms of circulation? So were people aware uh, of the claims of the Fatash? Absolutely, yes. So there is a very, very large amount of manuscripts uh, uh, on the ground uh, in Malian collections uh, that, uh, um, you know, cite uh, parts of the Tarikh al-Fatash. So the Tarikh al-Fatash was very widespread on the ground. It's interesting because we have letters, uh, we have a pamphlet of propaganda, we have a fatwa, for example, uh, who uses uh, pieces of the Tarikh al-Fatash. Then we have actually very few copies uh, uh, the Tarikh al-Fattash uh, itself. Uh, but in terms of, you know, being uh, the claims of the Chronicle known on the ground, we can say, yes, you, it, the, the Chronicle was successful. Now, did it work in terms of providing legitimacy to Hamdallah? This is a different story for several reasons. First of all, uh, you know, if I get, and I suspect so, the timeline of the production of the Tarikh al-Fattash, uh, the Chronicles was written very late in the life of Ahmed Lobo, and I'm sure you know we will have time to talk about this because it is related to diplomacy in the region. So I argue that the Chronicle will be written at the end of the life of Ahmed Lobo. So when the Chronicle was produced and started circulating, uh, Ahmed Lobo basically reached almost the end of his career. So he dies, and although it feels uh, like uh, the descendants of Ahmed Lob, of course, uh, had uh, to, uh, you know, hang to the chronicle uh, as a way to legitimize the very foundation of Hamdallahi. The main character who is legitimized in the chronicle dies. Okay, so this, in a way, makes the Tarikh al-Fatash uh, a project that arrived too, maybe too late uh, in the history of Ahmed Lobo. We don't really have any kind of explicit uh, um, text. Uh, that addresses uh, the claims of the Tarikh al-Fatash with the exception of one. This is a fantastic, actually, letter uh, that is written from uh, a leading scholar uh, from the Sokoto Caliphate, so from uh, what is today's northern Nigeria, Abdul Qadir Dan Tafa. He has a response uh, to one of the pamphlets of propaganda that were written by Nuh Buntair. And honestly, uh, Abdul Qadir Dan Tafa from Sokoto destroys the claims of the Tarikh al-Fattash, which is kind of interesting, you know, to understand uh, the, um, you know, the local uh, approach uh, to these uh, issues uh, at the time, uh, is the ground on the basis of which Abdul Qadir Dantafa attacks the claims of the Fattash. Because all the Western scholars, starting from Dubois, always said, okay, the Tarikh al-Fattash has some claims uh, that were forged later on, because you, you cannot have a prophecy. So the core of the Tarikh al-Fattash is a prophecy foretelling the arrival of Ahmed Lobo. So, Abdul Qadir Dantafa does not question the possibility of a, for, uh, of a prophecy. But what he does, uh, he questions the accuracy of quotation. So, Abdul Qadir Dantafa questions uh, uh, that Nohbuntai did not really understand very well the sources that he's citing. So, as such, his argument is weak. I think this is very fascinating. Then there is also hints uh, to some kind of other... Uh, resistance to um, the, um, the claims of the Tariq al-Fattash uh, in the sarcastic statement of a later uh, scholar from the area of Timbuktu, from the Kunta family, the very famous scholar Ahmed al-Bakai, who kind of patronizes uh, the Fulani in a completely different context. We're talking about, you know, 
15, 20 years after the death of Ahmed Tobo, said that basically the Fulani are kind of gullible. They believe everything that they are told. And then I'm almost quoting, you know, by memory, even they believe if somebody tells them that the 12 caliph mentioned by the Prophet would have come from amongst them. Of course, it's a clear reference to the Tariq al so again, it's it's a complex uh, response. How was was it or not the Tariq al Fatash? I mean, effective uh, in uh, shaping the world uh, that he was trying to impact upon. Yeah. Yeah, as you may imagine, I'm not very happy with the Fulani bashing going on in the response of Ahmed al Bakay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but something I wanted to ask you, uh, for you to talk a little bit more about, is these indeed these diplomatic relations with the Sokoto Caliphate. You devote an entire chapter to them. Um, laying out sort of in trying to explain yeah, the, the, the type of work that the Tariq Fatash was trying to achieve and whether or not it worked. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, it's only to a certain extent. Um, and it also gives rise to, to these exchanges among scholars uh, from Hamdallah and the Sokoto Caliphate in which they really do not mince their words at all in the way they're talking to each other. That was actually really great um, how you showed that in, in, in your primary sources. So tell us more about that. These diplomatic relations and scholarly relations between the Caliphate of Hamdalai and the Sokoto Caliphate. Yeah, and indeed, you know, this was, I would say, the chapter that I enjoyed writing the most. It came out quite quite easy, quite natural, because as you say, the sources are so, you know, colorful, you know, that you never stop, uh, you know, reading these things with joy. Anyway, so I really think that uh, the diplomatic relationship between Hamdalai and Sokoto are fascinating for several reasons. So first of all, is this issue of the type of sources, very interesting uh, materials, but also because we don't really know that much about pre-colonial uh, intra-African diplomacy. So this is like, you know, a very important case that goes beyond the topic of my book, uh, the sort of an, an invitation uh, to uh, uh, excavate more, you know, the archives to see how these states were uh, talking to each other. And this, of course, it's also very important because the relationship between Sokoto and Amnalai is extremely close, but very problematic. So we know that, uh, uh, you know, Sokoto Caliphate is founded basically 14 years before uh, Amnalai, but Usman Danfodio, the founder of Sokoto, had showed interest in expanding, you know, his movement to the West. So from what is today's northern Nigeria into what is, you know, the Mali and Burkina Faso border all the way to Timbuktu and uh, to the area of Masina where Andalai basically will eventually emerge. So he was actually actively seeking for, uh, I would say, local proxy emirs uh, who could uh, start uh, like a local uh, dependent state uh, in uh, central Mali that would be in a way hierarchically subjected uh, to Sokoto. And indeed, when Ahmed Lobo emerged as a leading, I mean, scholar and also revolutionary leader in the region, he asked for permission, and I would say most likely also for support, to conduct his rebellions against the Fulani of Bambara uh, in his region. But eventually, you know, when his messengers arrive in Sokoto, Usman Danfodio dies, there is some kind of quarrels between his uh, brother and his son for, uh, you know, um, for the uh, succession to uh, as rulers of Sokoto. So basically, this thing delays a little bit uh, Sokoto's intervention, and Ahmed Lobo actually manages to do the job by himself. 
So he gets rid of the Bambara of Sego, of the local Fulani warrior elite, and he establishes Hamdallah as an independent state from Sokor. So from that moment on, there will be always an ambiguity. So the leading elite of Sokor will see Hamdallah as a dependent state. Well, Hamdallah would always see itself as an independent state from Sokoto. So basically, there would be like a, a strong tension, you know, with peaks of tension in time that is really, really captured in the documentation that you, Medina, were referring to. But really, as you said, you know, there's sometimes very harsh words exchanged between the scholars, you know, kind of representative of the two factions. Uh, you know, I could cite some of the... Um, harsh words exchanged between uh, uh, these two elites. Uh, but just, you know, to kind of uh, capture uh, the way in which Ahmed Lobo used to, uh, you know, handle his quarrels, he was not a shy person, he was not a person who would uh, keep quiet. Uh, I would like to mention, you know, uh, another of his quarrels, not with the Sokoto leaders, uh, but with the local Fulani, um, you know, uh, leader who lived east of the, uh, the region of Hamdallahi, uh, his name was uh, Gelagio Ambodejo, who basically complains that Ahmed Lobo does not uh, confirm him once his area is uh, uh, basically incorporated in Amdalai, does not confirm him as a ruler of the region. And Ahmed Lobo basically writes to him saying that uh, he understands power as rooted uh, in piety and knowledge. Then he answered, as for your piety, it is questionable. Concerning your knowledge is practically non-existent. <laughs> yeah. Well, that quote was great, actually, when you inserted it in the book. It's, yeah, and they're really writing to each other like that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And just, you know, concluding a word on Sokoto, just to get back to something that I mentioned before, I think it was also extremely important for me to reconstruct this uh, diplomatic relationship and the up and downs of this diplomatic relationship. Because I think that we can date the Tarikh al-Fattash as a 19th century product to the late 1830s through reading the correspondence between Sokoto and Handalahi that reached a new peak at the end of the 1830s when the first generation of Sokoto leaders, who in a way had settled their dispute with Ahmed Lobo. So there's a new generation that comes to power and open again uh, the uh, the problem of the dependency of Hamdalai from Sokoto. Yeah. Wow. I, m- moving a little bit away from the, the content of the book, which I could talk to you about all day long, um, I was really curious reading this about your your research process as well, like what the research process was like. Because as you just explained, I mean, obviously you have to, you know, Writing, working on the history of Hamdalai takes you to a lot of different other regions. Um, as you track these manuscripts, as you have to figure out sort of the, the, the ramifications that the, the, the main manuscript, the Teresh Hafatash, sort of had. So I'm really curious about your, your research process. And if you can, ask, can tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, where does one end up where they're trying to write the history of this manuscript and the history of the caliphate? Oh, everywhere, literally, because uh, as you know, uh, I started this research in France. And uh, I must also say, you know, sometimes people uh, manage, you know, to really uh, plan their research very well. They know what they want to do. I had no idea. I mean, 
I found these documents and my research starts from a random finding. Okay, so intentionality behind uh, the beginning of this research was zero, honestly. So I found this manuscript that opened the world. As I say, it opened the Pandora box that basically took me, of course, to Mali through South Africa. But uh, it took me basically everywhere in, uh, in West Africa because manuscripts that I used uh, come from Senegal, from Nigeria, from Mauritania, from Niger. But I also conducted uh, a failed mission uh, looking for uh, copies of the Tariq al-Fattash uh, in northern Ivory Coast and uh, in Ghana. Uh, I was again with my colleague Dr. Jagat in northern Ivory Coast in Ghana looking for copies of the Fattash. Uh, and uh, basically that was like a, a very interesting uh, trip looking for a manuscript described in uh, two catalogs uh, that uh, we discovered were basically forged. So <laughs> we have a forgery in a forgery. So it's not just the Tariq al-Fatash that can be described as a forgery, but also two catalogs describing manuscripts from Ghana and Ivory Coast that listed copies of the Tariq al-Fatash we discovered being a forgery by themselves. You can uh, write it's a little, little interesting article that I wrote and I quoted with uh, Mohamed Jagete uh, that talks about uh, the story of the forged catalogs uh, and the manuscripts that we couldn't find in Ivory Coast in Ghana. So, of course, the first stage uh, was uh, that of collecting together uh, these materials. Uh, and then, uh, finally, you know, uh, the story of the Fetash started looking a little bit like a puzzle, you know? So we had all these little uh, pieces uh, that uh, I had to uh, uh, start putting together. And uh, once, you know, I knew what was going on uh, and I thought the process was basically done, uh, I actually realized that I still had another substantial issue to face. So I was dealing with two stories, in fact, not with one, because I was dealing with the story of the Fatash, but I was also dealing with the history of the Philippines of Underline. That was really, really the toughest part of my work, was how to combine these two stories that are relatively, um, you know, different, also in terms of methodology, more of a philology, more of, you know, classical history, the second part of the story. So how could I tell uh, these two separate but intertwined histories? Uh, actually, was very complicated to, uh, to figure out. Uh, and uh, well, basically, it took me 10 years to understand how to tell, uh, to tell this story. Yeah. Well, having read it, I can tell you that it fits very well together and it's all really fluid. Um, it, it comes together really beautifully in the book and I hope that everybody will read it, you know, in addition to listening to that inter to this interview because um, it's done really well. Um, listen, I, I, I mean, we've taken up enough of your time already today, but uh, before we fully conclude, I was just wondering what projects, uh, small or big, it does not matter, you are currently working on and engaged on at the moment? Uh, a lot of things. And I mean, also this kind of summer uh, with the COVID-19 and no trips uh, at the horizon, uh, most likely will make uh, some of these projects I'm working on, uh, uh, you know, see the light. So basically, I mean, I, I want to just focus on one particular project that is really related to the book that, you know, we discussed at land today. Because um, one of the things that made me uncomfortable uh, was uh, the fact that I did not provide in my uh, analytical piece in the, my book, Sultan Caliph and Renewer of the Faith, uh, I do not make available uh, the 
17th century chronicle by Ibn al-Muqtar and the 19th century tarikh al-Fattash by Nohabuntair but ascribed to uh, Mahmoud Kati. I do not make them available for scholars. Both, you know, for, that, for scholars to further develop my arguments or to, you know, contest my argument, but also, you know, for students who might actually be interested, you know, handling these chronicles in a more reliable way. So what I'm doing right now, I'm working on a project that has been generously sponsored by an NEH grant uh, of an edition of a parallel compare edition and translation into English of the two 17th and 19th century uh, texts. And, you know, I'm very grateful uh, for the grant that I received from the NEH because it allowed me to bring on board uh, two colleagues uh, who are working uh, with, you know, great enthusiasm with me on the project. Uh, so I have Ali Jakite from uh, Hill Museum and Manuscript Library and Zachary Wright from uh, Northwestern University in uh, Qatar. And we are actually at quite advanced stage uh, with, uh, with the book, this new book that will have... Uh, sort of uh, introductory essay on the historiography of the chronicle. Uh, and then we'll have the two chronicles finally separated for people who want to you know, read maybe only the 19th century or only the 17th century or want to compare the two texts. And also we will have chapters uh, in which we'll basically reflect uh, on uh, which kind of stories uh, the two texts finally separated can tell us about 17th and 19th century West Africa. And we've been already contracted by the British Academy, and the edition will be published by the Fontes Historia Africane uh, series. Actually, in fact, uh, we should deliver the book uh, very soon. Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure these deadlines are, are facing you. Then, uh, but that's that's really exciting. Um, I think it will be a really get, great uh, complement as well to your book. I mean, separately they stand fine, but it will it will be great to have both books together and be able to read them. Um, and if I understood correctly, there's also a translation of this current book in the work, uh, translation to French. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So this has been uh, uh, sponsored by the, my University of Illinois, because one of the things that really, really, really kind of leaves me uh, disappointed is that uh, not much of the scholarship that is produced uh, in, uh, I would say, in Europe and North America circulates in Mali unless it is in French. So what I did, uh, I managed to secure funds uh, to have my uh, book translated into French. So it is now in the process of being translated into French. Uh, and uh, it will be published uh, in Mali by the Ahmed Baba Institute uh, within uh, the C their new series of publication. Actually, the Ahmed Baba Institute has been very, very active uh, in uh, publishing new editions uh, of manuscripts that are hosted by the center itself. So this is a project... Uh, uh, the way I, I like to see this project, uh, that yes, I wrote it, uh, but it is a project that mainly uses Malian uh, archives uh, that will be is being translated by a Malian uh, translator, a professional translator, uh, Seydou Traoré, and it will be published by a Malian institution, the Ahmed Baba Institute, hopefully to circulate with the Malian audience. Yeah. Oh, that would be really fantastic also. Um, and I can't wait to see how, how the work keeps blossoming, um, you know, both both here in the English-speaking world, but also in Mali, it will be really important. Um, all right, well, this this concludes our, our interview. Again, for our listeners, this was Dr. Mauro Nobili presenting his brand new book, Sultan, Caliph, and the Renewer of the Faith, Ahmed Lobo, the Tarikh al-Fattash, 
and the Making of an Islamic State in West Africa, which was just published in 2020 with Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Mauro. I'm really excited about the book, and I hope that everybody who listened to this will go ahead and read it. It is really a fantastic, a fantastic read. Thank you very much, Marina. That was actually a lot of fun. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk uh, about the book. You know, there was a lot uh, of my time uh, and a lot of my enthusiasm behind it. So thank you really, really, very much. <laughs>